0: So, uh, we've come to the end today, um, uh, or in a little while we'll be at the end, of uh, a, a number of weeks where we've been um, asking really one question of the book of Ezra. Remember, this book, Ezra, records the return in dribs and drabs of God's people, Israel, to the Promised Land after they had been exiled Um, sent away from the promised land because of their sin. And we've been using this record, this Old Testament record of God's people returning and being restored as a sort of object lesson of how God always restores his people in all ages, how he restores and strengthens churches now after the time of, of Christ. In all ages and all places, there are consistent patterns. God, in his goodness, um, has has done a lot to strengthen us at Magdalen Road Church over the last uh, uh, 16 years that I can um, um, uh, uh, remember, at least. And I, I, I rejoice in a lot of, uh, well, in, in what he's done amongst us. But it hasn't been dramatic, it hasn't been... Um, um, Without stumbling, without failures, especially by me, it has to be said, Um, God has been very good to us. But my ambition, my hope, my prayer is that God will continue to strengthen and revive um, uh, Moreland Road Church over the next 16, 20, 100 years. God is doing that up and down the uh, the country, despite the uh, newspaper headlines. The evidence, as far as I can see it, is that God is restoring the witness of his church in this country. There are plenty of churches dying, but there are plenty of churches being planted. Um, And Magdalene Road has the privilege, if God blesses us over the next few years, of from one becoming three. That's extraordinarily exciting. And so we've read... This uh, book of Ezra with those things in mind. How does God restore his people? And up to now, overwhelmingly, the lessons we've learned have been pretty happy, haven't they? We saw God's providence. But uh, working by his providence, God moving in the hearts of his people and even pagan rulers to enable God's people to be restored. We, got, we saw God's people establishing worship in Jerusalem. Before they did any rebuilding, they worshipped and they celebrated. It was a bit tougher when we uh, um, looked at how they had to persevere for generation after generation amidst opposition as they had to learn to plod. But in that perseverance there was fruit and there was encouragement and then last week uh, we actually jumped ahead um to uh, get a glimpse of what Ezra was doing um uh, years later as he continued to labor for the for the strengthening and the restoration of his people and we saw Ezra uh, there um uh, teaching the bible faithfully and uh, although that was a bit tough, if you were here last week, you'll remember the people wept as they read and understood the Bible. They were, nevertheless, they were encouraged to rejoice, to celebrate. The joy of the Lord is your strength, they were told. This is a special day. The, the, the news about how God revives and restores his church has been overwhelmingly good so far. But today, it's going to be tougher. There um, are aspects we are going to learn of what it means to be restored and strengthened as the people of God. There are aspects of that that are are heart-wrenchingly painful. Today, we're going to see Ezra literally pulling his hair out. I wish I could say that my follicularly challenged um, pate was to do with me engaging in that kind of pastoral uh, uh, pain. Um, Sadly, it's not. But there he is as a leader, feeling in deep pain for his people. We want to see Magdalene Road um, uh, grow only in numbers and be quickly filled we could emphasize all the nice, happy bits and we would gather a crowd. But would we really have advanced the kingdom? No. If we're going to see God's people grow as God intends them to grow, we must embrace the difficult alongside the easy and the happy. And interestingly, that is how Ezra ends. We're saved the worst till last. It's not going to be easy. First of all, we need to identify the problem that um, uh, Ezra and the people of God faced. There it is in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. After these things, all the other wonderful good things have been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like the Canaanites, the the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, The Egyptians and the Amorites, they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. The leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Here's the problem then for Israel. They have intermarried with the surrounding peoples. Actually, that sounds like simple racism to our ears. Now, such texts as this have been used, for instance, in South Africa to justify apartheid. They're still used, sadly, in America and in some churches to discourage interracial marriages and to, to promote racially segregated churches. I remember a, um, a Sinhalese Sri Lankan friend of mine who mani- married a Tamil Sri Lankan and had a really difficult time from extended family and from the church. But we're not to take um, texts like this as an injunction not to mix the races. The New Testament says quite the opposite. God's church, says the New Testament, is now explicitly to be a gathering of people from all nations on equally, gro- equal ground of being equally children of God, all, all equally sharing in the blessings that come from Christ's death on the cross. Next, next week I go to, to Central Asia. Um, I'll be staying with an Australian who's married to a Korean who ministered for some time, I think, as I remember in. Wales, and now they're in a, another third um, uh, country worshipping and serving there in a, in, a, in a sort of thoroughly mixed environment. That is how it should be. That is beautiful. But before Jesus came, before God's people um, spread out to all the nations, God was working at this point in the story of Ezra with one nation, Israel. And at that point, marrying non-Israelites was a problem, not for racial reasons, but as the text makes plain, did you see, because of the detestable practices associated with those other nationalities. Um, It's important for us to realise that the problem is not the presence of sin itself. It's not as if they're saying... There is sin uh, uh, um, amongst Israel and that completely compromises us. You couldn't look at the life of Israel which was focused around regular sacrifices for sins and believe that, frankly, objectively. The whole life of Israel was about dealing with sin that does come up in every human life. The whole life of God's church is focused around the death of Jesus, his death on the cross for our sins, and regularly we confess our sins publicly because it is to be expected that there will be ongoing struggles with sin amongst God's people. That is not the problem that they're dealing with uh, here. We should not read it as that. The problem is that there was um, not just sins amongst God's people, but one big overarching sin, which was a problem and still is. The marriage of uh, Israelites with these other nations would lead them away from worshipping the true God. God's people are called to love the Lord their God with all their heart and mind and soul and strength. And uh, the sin of turning away from God is not one which God forgives lightly. Indeed, there is no promise in Scripture that anyone who turns away from the living God while they are turned away from Him will be forgiven. A thousand million failures and stumbles. That are repented of, and we can uh, that we come back to Christ and ask His forgiveness. Those can be forgiven. That is the that was the the the, a fundamental function of Israel. That is a fundamental function of God's church to bring people together in repentance. But that is not what is troubling Israel at this point. Marriage is such a an intimate thing, such a such a close bond. Such a union of hearts that if one partner does not worship the living God, then it is almost impossible for the other partner to maintain their commitment to that God. Does the the New Testament continue to say that? Yes, it does. The New Testament is equally clear that Christians should not marry non Christians. two Corinthians six, verse fourteen. Do not be yoked with unbelievers. One Corinthians seven, verse thirty nine. Um, um, the Apostle Paul says you're free to choose any spouse, but they must belong to the Lord. The New Testament is, is as consistent is consistent with this Old Testament pattern in this: Christians are should not marry those who are not Christians. Should, should, should Christians then date non-Christians? Well why? Sure, surely that is, uh, that is foolishness, isn't it? By all means, be friends with the, uh, with the opposite sex. By all means, tell that attractive person of the opposite sex about Jesus. Make it plain, though, that no lifelong relationship could develop between you unless they become a follower of Jesus. It is just not possible to unite yourself with someone who's not a follower of Jesus and and have an uninterrupted, happy walk with the Lord. Who knows that God may convert that person who you become friendly with. And it may all end happily ever after. But we cannot assume that. I've sat with too many people contemplating marrying a non-Christian. For, for me to be, feel able to hold back on this for you, difficult as it may be for us to hear, because my experience is long and painful with those situations. And I have had to say to those people, your life will go in one, or, one of two directions. Either you will find that you are not able to maintain your Christian life as you have married this person who's not a follower of Jesus and your Christian life will fade away possibly to nothing at all or at the very best to nominalism. Or actually, you will find that you you can sustain in God's goodness a vibrant and lively faith i have seen that but amongst those for whom that happens if their partner stays a non-christian they come to profoundly regret that mesi- decision they made those are the only two things that happen if the person doesn't in God's goodness get converted What if my partner gets converted, you say? Well, my answer to them is that could happen and that would be great. But actually, by committing yourself to them whilst they are still not following Christ, your witness to them is not that Jesus is my all in all. Your witness to them is that my heart can be divided. And that is not a good witness. If you love that person, then the greatest thing you can want for that person is for them to come to follow Jesus Christ. And the most important thing that you can do for them is follow Christ with integrity. the solution for israel was to divorce their pagan wives that's made plain in this story should christians do the same well no the new testament is quite clear about that it was actually common in the first century for one partner in a marriage to get converted after they'd got married um and then and therefore for them to find themselves in a in a mixed marriage does that mean that they should get divorced as um, Uh, seems to be the case in the Old Testament. No, 1 Corinthians 7 says that they should not divorce. In the Old Testament, you see, God was working with an identifiable nation and it was vitally important that that nation as a whole was kept pure. In the New Testament, the Spirit goes where he wills and does and, and sometimes converts one partner and not another, And there is no mandate then to try to attempt to recreate that national people faithful and living uh, in faithfulness to God. God um, does not advocate divorce in those circumstances as he did for Israel. But it is a hard life if you find yourself in that situation. That's the problem, and although it's changed in shape slightly today, it is a real problem still. Not that there was sin amongst them, there will always be a sin among uh, be sin amongst God's people. But there were divided hearts amongst them. People not uh, people who were being drawn away to turn away from the living God. And that was an important issue. And there's something that perhaps is almost equally shocking. It's certainly a big surprise. It's Ezra's response. Ezra's first response is a deep sense that he shared in their sin. Look at his desolation in verse 3. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled the hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Most, most especially, notice in verses 5 and 6 how he shares in culpability for what has happened amongst them. At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self abasement with my tunic and cloak torn, fell on my knees, my hands spread out to the Lord my God, and I prayed. I am too ashamed. Notice, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. Or verse 15, The Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are, we are before you in our guilt though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. This is something actually deeply foreign to our culture. There are other cultures who understand this better, but in the West we are dominated by an understanding of of what it means to be human, which has come to to have the name individualism. We see ourselves as just standing alone, responsible for our triumphs and failures. And, and, And the idea is Christian in origin. There's a significant shift from Old Testament to New Testament where the New Testament makes it very plain that we will stand alone before God and answer for our actions. So a certain degree of individualism comes from New Testament teaching. But our culture has taken individualism to extremes. I mean, this this week people have been... Remembering rightly with horror, Margaret Thatcher's remark that there is no such thing as society. What people, I think, conveniently forget is individualism didn't begin with her and nor did it end when she lost power. It was part of a much bigger movement and shift in which people start to see themselves as free-floating individuals, both geographically, socially, In employment and increasingly in marriage commitments and even faith commitments. I am alone, free to drift through this world making the decisions that only I carry the can for. It is not true. We exist. In a stream of culture, our, our views, our moral standards, our deep attitudes that we think are forged on the, in the pure granite of unavoidable facts are actually shaped primarily by the culture around us. We are not free thinkers, none of us. We are collective thinkers. We, we're, we're townies or skaters or um, hipsters, whatever they are. We are socialists or monetarists. We are libertarians or communitarians. We belong to a family of beliefs. No one acts be- alone. We belong to tribes. Individualism, I think people increasingly are aware, is a denial of who we are. It's interesting, when Britain went to war in Iraq, a number of people in East Oxford had, had posters in their windows saying, I am not at war. And I know what they meant. They dissented from the government's from or Tony Blair's decision. But they were wrong. Our nation collectively acts together in certain ways, including going to war. We even have democratic processes to enable individual people to contribute to that collective identity. We may dissent, but we belong to a nation that makes those decisions. John Donne famously said, "'No man is an island entire of itself. "'Every man is a piece of the continent.'" Any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind. Therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. And as with death, so even more with sin. God's church, the Christian church, has to stand against this individualism. We are collectively responsible for one another. We are our brother's keeper and our sister's. We will, in part, be judged by God for our collective behavior. The world longs for community, it longs to belong. To a group like ours, it longs for that collective identity because we were not made to be isolated individuals. But there is a deep pain sometimes in that collective identity. We are all affected by one another's sins. At evening sacrifice, verse 5, I rose from my self abasement with my tunic and cloak torn. I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God, and I prayed, I'm too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. Ezra was deeply aware that God had judged Israel collectively from the days, verse seven, of our ancestors until now. Our guilt has been great because our sins, because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign gods as it is today. And God had in his grace and his mercy, Given them blessings, verse 9, for a brief moment. He had given them light, verse 8, relief from bondage, verse 9, verse uh, verse 8, sorry. He'd shown them kindness, verse 9. He had granted them new life, just as he has for us, just as he has amongst us, as a gathering of God's people. But Ezra knew that was not automatic. but it was for a brief moment. And how they responded collectively then to this problem amongst them determined God's attitude to them as a people. Now let me say to you, if you are a Christian here, then God is not going to withdraw that release from bondage, that light, that new life that He has given you. What, what He says to you, if you are a Christian, as an individual, He says to you, that is given to you irrevocably and you will not be condemned. But it doesn't mean we won't be judged. We will be judged as a discipline, says the New Testament. And that can be very, very tough as God works with us to conform us to the likeness of Christ, you don't want to go there. Even if there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The apostle says in 1 Corinthians 11, we're better to judge ourselves first than have God come and do it for us. And let me say to us collectively, there is no such promise even of that. God lets churches disappear and die. The empty churches up and down in this country are a vivid uh, witness to that. Uh, God holds churches collectively responsible for how they live together. And he has shown to us for a brief moment so far his light and his bondage and his kindness and his life. But no wise church presumes on that. You know, it's absolutely possible for churches to become nasty, legalistic, condemning, harsh, cruel places. It is absolutely true that churches must be places of grace and love, and forgiveness, and acceptance. But I don't think actually amongst us the big danger is of being harsh and cruel. You can correct me at the door if you think I'm wrong. No, I think the big pressure in our culture is to show what people love to talk about, unconditional love. Well, God's love is unconditional in one sense. He doesn't say, you do this to earn my love. He gives it freely. But it's massively conditional in another sense. He does not promise his love and forgiveness and mercy to those who turn away from him and will not follow him. And no church can take that lightly. Ezra Ezra felt himself deeply, intimately, collectively responsible for what had happened amongst them. I remember a generation ago sitting in a, in a church meeting, not this church, our previous church, listening to our pastor telling the church how a prominent member of the church had left his wife for another woman. And I remember hearing weeping. Would we weep? Which brings us to the people's response. 10 verse 1. While Ezra was praying and confessing and weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men and women and children gathered around him. And they too wept bitterly. Not just Ezra. The people as a whole, they urged Ezra to take a lead, or at least one spokesman in particular. Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, told, said to Ezra, we've been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us, but in spite of this, There is still hope for Israel. Let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up in this. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. Take courage. Do it. The people urging Ezra to take action. Now, let me me repeat, the New Testament does not advocate that particular action. I've already said that, but it does insist that God's people are responsible for dealing with serious unrepentant sin amongst us. And what do they do to work out um, how to discipline themselves? They call a church meeting, verse 7. A proclamation was issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Notice it's vitally important, you see. Everyone shares in collective responsibility for what they do here. Anyone who wouldn't come... That action itself excluded them from recognition as being amongst the people of God. If ever there was a passage to justify some sort of recognized church membership and the collective responsibility of a church as a congregation to make important decisions collectively, this is it, isn't it? You need leaders. They needed Ezra, but they needed all to own this decision that was made. And notice too, they acted very carefully dealing with individual cases. They decided that they, for instance, that they couldn't do it all in a moment. Verse 13, there are many people here, it's the rainy season, they'd been sitting in the rain in misery, it's the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two because we've sinned greatly in this thing. It ultimately took three months to work through and to deal with every specific situation because though you can generalise about sin, every individual situation is is specific and has its specific elements and needs to be dealt with in specific ways. Notice too that it was dealt with by those, if possible, closest to the people concerned. Verse 16, The exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. And on the first day of the tenth of the month, they sat down to investigate the cases and they'd finished by the first day of the um, uh, first month of the next year. Not every matter needs to be handled by elders or conducted before the whole church. The principle is clear, though. We're responsible to one another, to holding us accountable, to serve the living God there will always be sin amongst us the whole warp and woof of our life together is about acknowledging that but it must be sin that he's battled with it must be sin where where people come and seek repentance from Christ uh, uh, regularly for serious unrepentant persistent sin which is a turning away from the living God There must be discipline. Told you I left the worst till last. Sobering, isn't it? I have never ever dealt with a one of these difficult situations without having a significant number of people saying you're being too harsh. What right do you have to question someone's behavior? Surely we must be exercising unconditional love. Surely it's for us to accept one another whatever. And that just doesn't fit with the Bible. I've noticed something over the years although I think many mistakes have been made and I wouldn't want to uh, uh, distance myself from saying that, I think it is very, very difficult to handle these things with the sensitivity and the integrity that they must be. But I've noticed something over the years. As we have collectively dealt with those difficult issues appropriately, There's been a spurt of life and growth amongst God's people. Perhaps it's because, as happened here, suddenly God's people were brought face to face with the fact that there are really tough realities to work through here. And as they've wept and they've prayed to God, God has come in his grace and he's given them new life and new joy together, collectively. Perhaps it's simply the sovereign hand of God pouring out his spirit as he sees a people imperfectly struggling to be sincerely committed to following Jesus and loving the Lord their God with all their heart and mind and soul and strength. I, I don't know what it is and it can easily morph into something harsh and nasty and condemnatory and difficult and, uh, I, and I've felt it and seen it sometimes heading in that direction in myself and in my own heart I, I, I know how hard it is but God blesses people who together want to serve him wholeheartedly. How, how does God revive and restore his people? There are lots of great things. Worshipping and enjoying Jesus Christ. Seeing the sovereign hand of God, overseeing and changing hearts and And moving circumstances. Rejoicing as God's word is read and understood and the glories of forgiveness and so on are are fresh before our eyes. There are lots of great things that are associated with the restoration of God's people. But there's heart-wrenching things too. We can't avoid them. It breaks your heart to see someone turning away from Jesus. See someone being utterly foolish. I have to say, in our individualistic society, we tend to allow those people to sort of just float away. but we are responsible for one another.